this is happening in our world. And at the very least, you can bear witness to it. That's like literally the absolute least you can do. So I guess writing Ember and then writing All My Rage ultimately was a way for me to bear witness in my own way and to try to put into the world something that my hope is, you know, if someone reads Ember, when they hear something similar, when they see something similar, maybe they can find a way to care or to help instead of just letting it go over their heads. As a Muslim raised by immigrant parents in rural America, Sabah Tahir learned early that the world can be a disappointing place, a devastating place. And while she escaped in music and books, Saba didn't look away from the underbelly of humanity that she witnessed at her parents' business, in school, or at her job as a copy editor for the Washington Post. As a writer, she has channeled that outrage into her books, validating the frustrations of her coming-of-age readers. It reminds me of music, actually. Sometimes you're in the mood for poppy songs. And sometimes you want the sad song because that's what your heart needs in that moment. You need to feel seen. You need to feel less alone. You need to get in a headspace that allows you to sit with how you feel, if that's sadness or anger or frustration or loneliness. And I think that books can serve the same purpose in a way. Sabah Tahir is a New York Times bestselling author known for her Ember in the Ashes fantasy quartet, and more recently for All My Rage, winner of the National Book Award. I read All My Rage on a flight to New Orleans. The Wi-Fi was out, which meant that my laptop and work were as well. And I was so wrapped up in the book that even when the internet was restored, I just kept reading and reading. And then I ugly cried, like ugly cried, so much that the person next to me offered me tissues and asked if I wanted to talk. I'm so thrilled to have Saba on the show and to share her voice with you as well. In this episode, she tells us about the motel and a few sonic booms that shaped her early views on the world, how her time in journalism impacted her approach to fiction, and about her bold idea for Lego-proof socks. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and reading enthusiasts to explore ways to build a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Also, a quick reminder to check out The Reading Culture on Instagram at The Reading Culture Pod to hear more from our authors and to learn about some exciting giveaways. What was growing up like for you? I grew up in the Mojave Desert of California. And when people ask me where I live, I usually draw a circle and I label it nowhere. And then I point to the very center of that and say, that's where I grew up. And this actually came up very recently um, when I was in Southern California. And I was speaking to a group of Pakistani artists who have an art collective down there. And they had joined with a Pasadena literary group to have me come speak to a group of students. And they said, what town did you grow up in? And I explained it to them. And they said, oh, so what's that near? And I said, nothing. And they were like, no, I mean, like, what's the closest town? And I was like, Lancaster, you know, Palmdale, California, which is about 100 miles away. And they were so bewildered. They were like, no, but like, there has to be something closer. And I just tried to explain that there was nothing (laughs) closer. That was it. The town was very isolated. So it was this isolated desert town. 
and it had about, um, I think, 25,000 people. It felt smaller than it was because it was built around a naval air warfare station. And so part of the population was on that base. Many people's parents worked on the base. So you'd say, you know, what do your parents do? And they'd say, top secret, because that's where they built the Sidewinder missile and the Tomahawk missile. And they did all sorts of testing out there. I mean, I, I remember very clearly being at school and hearing you know, sonic booms and explosion and walk, walking out and seeing big black clouds of smoke out in the desert where they were testing. Wait, things. really? <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Did they stop school yeah. for it? Or were they like, no, it's just a sonic boom. Nope. Don't keep going. No, nope. just a sonic boom. Keep going. You know, we had the earthquake drills and it's so funny because a lot of people in California will say like, oh, you know, those earthquake drills were so useless, but we actually used them because we had tons of earthquakes in our little town. It was pretty common. So I was actually thankful for the earthquake drills because even though the quakes rarely happened when I was in school, for some reason they always happen at like 3 a.m., you know, I used what I learned. I'd like ducked and covered, hid under a table, <laughs> you know, I did all that. So what an apocalyptic feeling childhood. It was, yeah. And this is why I think I write what I do. This is why I started in fantasy because that town is just filled with stories. There were UFO stories. There were, you know, mysterious military testing stories. <laughs> there was all sorts of stuff. It was like a Do you remember any of them that like really stayed with you? Like, oh my God, like that just really like stayed in your memory or stayed in your conscience? I do. I do. Yeah. So it's stuff that happened to me. I remember being with two of my best friends in high school. We're walking on one of their streets and there's this wild flash of light that went across the entire sky. It wasn't lightning. I mean, it was the desert. We rarely had storms. You notice when it storms. It wasn't even cloudy. We're just walking and it's very late at night. You know, it was like, I don't know, midnight or something. And this crazy flash of light. And it was an unusual color. It was sort of like a green color. I remember this because we all like screamed and crouched at the same time. (laughs) So we were like, we're going to die. And then... I wondered, I was like, maybe it'll be in the paper tomorrow, which was such a silly thing to think because it was never in the paper the next day. But we had no idea what that was. It was just this weird, and it was an abnormally ginormous flash of light. This was not, you know, a transformer blowing or, like I said, lightning or something. It was like they did some type of test and, you know. And then... um, Driving along the 395, which is one of the roads that went by the town, there are these train cars out in the desert that are just sort of abandoned and sitting out there. And they're pretty far off of the main road. And I remember driving with my mother and we saw a truck, just a gigantic truck, turning off and heading toward those train cars. But there's nothing else out there. (laughs) And so we were just like, uh... (laughs) And there's a million stories like that. Everyone in this town has, and they have far more extreme stories than, you know, what I'm sharing. Those were just things that happened to me. Yeah, but it really like laid the groundwork for Ember, for the Ember series. You can see how. The Ember series, yes, 100%. What were you like as a kid, like an elementary school kid? What was your, your vibe? I don't think I was particularly remarkable in elementary school. I was kind of shy. I had, didn't have a large group of friends. I had friends all through those years, but I sort of drifted in and out of groups. I was always 
into story, though. I didn't really like reading until I was something in like second or third grade. But I did, I did always love story. I always told stories. That was sort of what I was known for in my family, you know, with my parents and stuff. What kind of stories? Like at bedtime, you mean? Or Any stories, you know, fairy tales, um, stories about animals. I remember telling my mom some story about like a goose. And we were going on a walk together and we just kept walking. And finally I was like, I'm tired. And my, But my mom had wanted to hear what happened, you know, in the story, which is why she kept walking. You know, gin stories. My mom would tell me gin stories. My dad would tell me gin stories. And so, you know, I was really interested in story. I was pretty introverted, very internal. There was always something going on in my head. And I wanted to fit in. When you're a little kid and you, you'll have like daydreams, my daydreams were all about fitting in. They were all about having the right clothes, you know, the right look, the right things to say and fitting in and being popular. And then as I got older, you know, got into like fourth, fifth and sixth grade, I actually, it was some of the more um, well-loved kids who could be the, the meanest. That started hitting me that these people weren't something to aspire to. Do you think there was some reason that you understood that they were not, as you put it, people to aspire to be? I mean, they were racist. A lot of people were racist. They were unintentionally racist, but they were absolutely prejudiced. It was the way, you know, my parents were treated. It was the way other parents would treat my parents. It was the way I was treated. I remember, you know, not necessarily understanding what Christmas or Easter were really about and being mocked for that by other kids who were like, you know, you don't, you don't know what Easter is. And I remember later sharing this with a friend and she, she was like, I'm Christian and I barely understand what (laughs) Easter is, you know? So, um, so, you know, it was, it was interesting, um, like upon reflection to see that that was, you know, just people being unkind, but it was, you know, it was everything. It was, it was little things from like, you know, you shouldn't wear that color, I remember being asked why I never wore dresses because I wore like modest dress. Generally, my dresses went past my knees. And I remember being like pestered about it, like kids saying, you know, why don't you ever wear dress? And we have this stupid rule at our school that was like every Monday girls had to wear dresses and boys had to wear. At your school, every Monday girls had to wear dresses? Every Monday, girls had to wear dresses. Oh, it, was, it was the worst. It was just the, the worst thing ever. And I remember dreading it because I'd, al- I'd always wear tights with my dresses um, because that was, you know, again, my mom dressed modestly. I dressed modestly. And so I remember just dreading, you know, Mondays because there would always be someone, you know, in the thick of a Mojave Desert summer being like, you know, why are you wearing tights? And it wasn't like, as an adult, it's much easier, I think, to know what to say, which is, you know, mind your own beeswax, basically. But yeah. but as a kid, I didn't, I didn't always know what to say. So, you know, a lot of times I just wouldn't say anything. And then that kind of, I think, made people feel like they could say more unkind things. But it was, it was sort of always there, low level. I would say it was School was one of those places, though, where I eventually found my footing because starting in seventh grade, I realized I was actually smart. Once I had that identity, it was like, okay, you're the smart kid. How did you know that? Like, how did just because getting good grades or was it, were there like teachers who called that out to you? (laughs) 
my teachers, for some reason, had me put in all remedial classes in seventh grade. I say for some reason, but right. we all know the reason. <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> for some sure. reason. I remember being in these remedial classes and all of my teachers being utterly bewildered as to why I was in these classes. They were just like, you are not, you do not belong here. And I give them so much credit. I still remember two of their names. My math teacher was Ms. Claire and my English teacher was Ms. Erickson. And they both fought to have me put into all honors classes in eighth grade. And that's when I realized that I was smart and that all the reading that I had been doing was actually giving me something that, like giving me an understanding of language that maybe wasn't as common. I've read that you or heard, listened to you, and you say you used to give stories to your friends for their birthdays. So you were always like a storyteller, (laughs) which I think is a great gift, especially now. I hope they saved them. (laughs) I hope they didn't. They were terrible stories. They were all about death. About death? Okay. That was like my main character was always like the Grim Reaper. I was super into like gothy, like Grim Reaper-y stuff. Because I couldn't, I wouldn't like, you know, my mother never let me dress in all black, which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to dress in all black and wear black nail polish and, you know, have black eyeliner and be like a true goth. But my mother was like, absolutely not. You're not wearing all black. And you're certainly not painting your nails black. <laughs> so, so I had to I had to make do with writing stories about the Grim Reaper. <laughs> they like, thank you. This will be such a happy birthday for me. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. Quote, my father came to America with a deep belief in the goodness of people, but the motel taught him and all of us better. Unquote. In 2021, Saba penned an autobiographical article in Vox titled The Ghosts of Our Motel. In it, she recalls the unusualness of her upbringing that largely centered around the motel her parents ran in the middle of the desert. The revolving doors of strangers deep within the back rooms of Americana served as a window into the true goodness, or lack thereof, in people, each experience peeling back a new layer, digging out the hope with which her parents had arrived to this country. This is where Saba learned that she was different. It's a place and a time that has stuck with her and shaped her. I lived at the motel almost exclusively until I was about 13. There was one school year where we lived in like a rental while somebody else managed the motel. And that was a revelation for me, you know, because it was like the bell wasn't ringing all the time and there weren't people shouting at my parents and the police weren't coming to like have to get a tenant out. And I wasn't hearing these terms. I wasn't hearing go back to where you came from. I wasn't hearing, you know, all the things that, that people say, I think, when they're not just uneducated, but just sort of vicious, you know, like whatever's happening in their life is making them desperately need to feel superior to whoever's around them and... You know, for some of the tenants at our motel, that was my parents, that was us. And they really enjoyed treating us like garbage. (laughs) There's a story in All My Rage about um, Miss Butt and how she rents a room to a woman for free. And the woman's boyfriend takes everything in the room. And that is a true story. They just renovated the room. They'd, you know, they'd put up pictures. They'd fix it. It was really the first room my parents had, like, properly renovated. Because when they took over the motel, it was in pretty bad shape. And this woman came in, you know, it was windy, storming. She had a baby. My mom rented her a room because she felt really bad for her. And they, her and her boyfriend took everything. They took the bed, they took the TV, they took everything. 
that was an early lesson for my parents. And then it was, you know, dealing with everything from when they wanted to take out a business loan and being rejected by every bank in the town for really no good reason until one gentleman actually had a park named after him. His last name was Pearson. But he was the only person who gave my parents a business loan because he wasn't racist. (laughs) 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 And I mean, there was so much of that in that. I mean, this is a town that, remember a history teacher said, there was a billboard that said, impeach Thurgood Marshall. Like for the longest time outside the town, you know, if you looked at like the 60s yearbooks, there was like Klan pictures in them. I remember being in high school and having someone leave a Klan flyer on my car. Wow. It was a weird place. It didn't feel like California. It felt like the Twilight Zone. <laughs> that is just sound like the Twilight I mean, everything you described is like the Twilight I mean, you just down to the, you know, the starting from the sonic booms, I should say. It is the Twilight Zone. But again, you know, it's, I think it is important to see the nuance that even in a place like that, I had friends with parents who looked out for me. I had... My parents had, they didn't have many friends, but, you know, my, my dad didn't really have any, but my, my mom had had a few close friends. There were a few other Muslim families in the town. That is the thing about a town like this is it's not all good and it's not all bad. The good is what helps you survive, but the bad is what makes you wary and careful and makes you lonely at times. And then the, the motel is kind of like this other kid in your family. It's so interesting to me. I always say, we always joke that we have, you know, three kids, but just two are our children, our actual children, and one is like our business. But in your case, it was really like also physically like this other entity in your life, you know? Yeah, that was my parents' main kid, right? was the motel. But they had other businesses too, right? Like they were just trying to make it. Ultimately, my parents were like so many immigrant families, they were just trying to make it so... They had a clothing resale business that they shut down after a couple of years. They had a drive through dairy. They sold a lot for it after a few years. But I remember playing with the milk crates, the drive through dairy. And then the thing that they had the longest was a gas station. And I worked there just like I, you know, would answer phones at the motel. You know, like one summer in college, I worked at the store. It was just part of sort of the family business. But I think when you are that outward facing and you have so many interactions with strangers, inevitably... Some of them are going to be pretty bad. And those are the ones that stick in your head. Yeah, it's like extreme acts of kindness might stay there, but just like the everyday negative ones stay with you too, you know? Yeah. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster lose something every day except the fluster of lost door keys the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel, none of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent, I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like, disaster. One Art is a poem by Elizabeth Bishop that was first published in 1967 in The New Yorker. It also appeared in her book, Geography 3, 
which came out that same year. The poem is a beautiful exploration of loss, acceptance, and learning how to move on, embracing all three as an inevitable part of life. But Saba's first experience with this poem is less about the finished piece and more about the craft of writing behind the scenes. It served as a critical point in her journey to becoming an author. I encountered this poem in a book called The Writer's Home Companion. My oldest brother gave it to me when I was in high school. It was my very first book about writing. He knew I was a writer before I knew I was a writer. I sort of saw it as like, oh, this is going to make me a better writer for school. But I think he sort of saw, like, this is something that you should have because you're a storyteller. And one art was in this compendium of essays about writing, and it was in the section about editing. And it showed the many drafts of one art. And the essay was about how Elizabeth Bishop sort of moved through these drafts to end up with the final poem. And it taught me so much about drafting and about editing. It was one of the biggest gifts I could have gotten, which is this idea that the first draft is just, truly just the beginning. It's almost like you're telling yourself the story as opposed to telling it to anyone else. It was like these seemingly minute changes, but then you sort of see how they all add up. And it's like, oh, wow. You know, she really had to re-envision what she wanted this poem to be from beginning to end. And, you know, rearranging and, and all that sort of stuff. And she did what all, all this stuff that appears to be fine-tuning, but it's not. It's so much deeper than that. It has it ends up becoming much more relevant to how the poem feels and to its tone and even to how one reads it. But then the poem really stuck with me. I read it again when I was in college and it meant something new to me. You know, loss was a different animal in college. And then I moved into my late 20s and my early 30s and loss took on a new meaning for me again. And then in my late 30s, I turned to the poem again and I incorporated it into All My Rage because my hope is that maybe young people who need this poem, who will find comfort in this poem, it can be there for them in their life throughout the stages of their life, as it was for me. The magic of editing, or the evolution of a story, is something that fascinates Saba. It's in the second, third, and fourth drafts that the story becomes what it was meant to be, And while reading about Elizabeth Bishop's poem gave her a transformative look into this process, her own mastery over fine-tuning her fiction was honed in a very non-fiction environment, the editing room at the Washington Post. Saba worked there, editing copy at the foreign news desk before she ever became an author, and the experience was a crucial one. It's interesting because it wasn't like this huge part of my career, like it was not this long period of time, but it, it had a very, very outsized impact. I learned so much about writing and storytelling from there. I learned how to look at a story and a source and always be asking more questions. And I was an editor, I was never a reporter there, but I think when you're reading these stories every day, you get a sense for what questions people are asking. And when you listen to editors talking to the reporters and you do some line editing where you talk to reporters and you say, oh, you know, I'm curious about this or I would like to know more about this. That's where you really start to understand how to how to suss out the contours of a story. And that's where I learned how to do that. How I learned the idea of like beginning, middle, and end of a story, or at least concluding, you know, thoughts on a story, even if the story is not over yet. Yeah. And especially as like the editor, I'm guessing you were also like, you have to like find what's essential, which is also, I think, I imagine, I guess, as a writer is a hard thing to do. Even writing fiction, just figuring out what's, 
what's needed, what's not. Yeah, I mean, there's that old phrase about killing your darlings, right? Which is like taking something that you think is really important and realizing that this doesn't belong in the story and I'm just attached to it for the wrong reasons and letting it go so that the story can breathe and shine and be a better story. A lot of that I learned from the Post because I do believe that news organizations, I don't know about now um, because I don't work in the media now, but at the time news organizations were sort of beautifully unsentimental about canning things that didn't matter or that were not worthy, that were not sourced, that were not properly proven. You couldn't go on like a hunch. Like you had to have a quote. You had to have a source. You couldn't just opine unless you were in the opinion section, in which case that's the place for it, right? And so it felt a little bit more neutral then than the news does now. And that's sort of where I learned this very important lesson, which is that, you know, multiple points of view are important. And that's actually why Ember has sort of an inside-outside narrative. It has the soldier who is sort of amongst the villains, and then it has the marginalized character who is sort of amongst the traditional heroes, but they're actually both heroes. And it's sort of really about how they both have very different versions of what's happening. And then you have this third character of um, Helene, who is very much drinking the bad guy's Kool-Aid, right? And seeing how she justifies everything. And the goal of having these points of view is to really tell a complete story. Because in journalism, you have to have more than one source. (laughs) You have to be able to tell a complete story. All My Rage is Saba's first contemporary fiction novel. Diverging from her earlier fantasy novels, the three interwoven stories within the book showcase one of the defining qualities of Saba's work her adeptness at delivering heavy, emotionally charged storytelling. Saba doesn't shy away from extreme feelings and intense situations, which results in harrowing but meaningful reads. I was interested to hear about how she balances staying true to the realness of life while focusing on a teen audience. I think to some degree, I sort of let the books do the talking. There are things that I talk about with my childhood that I'm comfortable talking about. And then there's a lot of things that I will never talk about because the place for them is my books. And that's the only place I feel comfortable or safe talking about them. So I think that that feeling existed when I was a young person too. And I didn't know how to talk about it at that time. I didn't know writing books was even an option. So it was like, I just journal or and then tear stuff up or, you know, I would listen to music and, you know, be in my feels, right? (laughs) But um, as time went on, I realized like, you know, the things that frustrate you, you know, looking at the world and seeing how, what felt like my people, you know, like how my people were treated. And when I say my people, I mean people who look like me or who were just people of color. I mean, it didn't even, you know, just people who were marginalized, people who the world had written off as like, oh, that's a poor country. Oh, that's a third world country, right? Like that, the things that were happening in a lot of places didn't seem to register with most people I knew. And that really bothered me. And so I wanted to find a way to make it register. And I did that by making these characters who to me anyway are deeply lovable. (laughs) You want them to be okay and putting them in situations that mirror what's happening all over our world and making people care that way. You know, even if they don't, you know, I've talked to people who've said, you know, I don't, I don't read the news and I get it. I a hundred percent get it. You know, they're like, I, you know, I remember being in 
post-college years and many friends who were the same age, they would be like, so what's happening in the world, Saba? Because I was the only one who read the news because I did it for work. And so, you know, I would tell them and they'd be like, okay, stop, 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 like too depressing. And it was like, but this is happening in our world. And at the very least, you can bear witness to it. That's like literally the absolute least you can do. So I guess writing Ember and then writing All My Rage ultimately was a way for me to bear witness in my own way and to try to put into the world something that my hope is, you know, if someone reads Ember, when they hear something similar, when they see something similar, maybe they can find a way to care or to help instead of just letting it go over their heads. Do you think it's okay to just like say it? That's something I hear people say, I think a lot is like, it's self-care. I'm not reading the new, you know, I'm not, these you know, educated people I do. who- I do <laughs> think that's okay because I think we have a pretty massive mental health crisis in the country. And I think a lot of it comes from sort of overexposure to the news and to all these terrible things happening in our world. And I understand when people need to step away from that. I don't think stepping away should be permanent. I don't think you should have a complete bubble of a worldview. I do think it's important to re-engage at times to understand what's happening in our world. And I think we have a responsibility to try to help in any way that we can, whether that's voting, whether that's if something is happening abroad and it's bothering us, you know, contacting our Congress people and saying, I'm really disturbed by what's happening to, for instance, you know, the Rohingya in Burma or the Uyghurs in China or what happened to the population in Darfur in Sudan. You know, like these are things that worry me. What is America doing about these things? Like, you know, like I, I do think we have a responsibility to do that because we are citizens of the world too. The book is so much about loss. And just to get back to something we talked about a little bit earlier, you know, I guess what has been either the reaction from kids, young people you've spoken to about reading something that is so deep in um, grief and loss, or also what are your thoughts on like the importance of having books that grapple with these very, you know, hard experiences? It reminds me of music, actually. Sometimes you're in the mood for poppy songs, right? You want the poppy song. And sometimes you want the sad song because that's what your heart needs in that moment. You need to feel seen. You need to feel less alone. You need to get in a headspace that allows you to sit with how you feel, if that's sadness or anger or frustration or loneliness. And I think that books can serve the same purpose in a way. They just maybe go, they last a little longer and they sort of go a little deeper. So far, one of the things that I've heard from young people is, I saw myself in this book in unexpected ways. And it's not, I'm not talking about necessarily Muslim kids or Pakistani kids. I'm talking about all sorts of kids. And it's always something they say when they come up to me at an event, usually, and they have just a few minutes to chat with me. Sometimes they tell me why, and sometimes it's very heartbreaking. And sometimes they just, I had a, I've had actually multiple students just come up and say, you know, and it's like, yep, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, that, and, and that's it. You know, the, the book is, it's meant to be something very, very simple. It's meant to be a witnessing of a story that maybe hasn't been witnessed before. And 
It's not meant to represent all Pakistanis. It's not meant to represent all Muslims. It's not meant to represent all desert people, you know? <laughs> do you feel that weight on you sometimes though? Or have you? It's sort of a question because you're like the first to do this, the first for that, you know? I think people have tried to put that weight, but I don't carry it because I don't think that we put that weight on other people. Like, I don't think that Stephen King sits there thinking, do white men really relate to this other white man that I have in this book. And I don't think that really many authors sit there thinking that way. And I don't think we should have to. I think we should be able to just write a story because we think the story matters and the story is important and the characters matter and their voices are important. And there's a universality to what they're struggling through and to the change that they're going through that other people will be able to relate to or learn from or feel witnessed by. All of my work is meant to kind of look at some of these difficult things, but then ultimately offer hope and say, hey, there's life after, you know? And in the case of Ember, it's like, you know, these characters go through hell, essentially, and they, you know, most of them, not all of them, but, you know, most of them survive and they get through it and they find joy and they find hope. And even in the worst situations, they find a way through, which is something that I learned at the newspaper, reading stories about people in some of the most dangerous and scary places in the world. And the same goes for All My Rage. You know, these kids are going through something really difficult, but there is life after their grief and after their trauma. There is hope after their pain. There is a whole world waiting for them. And just because they go through something doesn't mean that thing is all they are. And that's really a lot of what the story is, is meant to be about. And that's why I think that it works for young people, because I think that at that age, at the age of 14, 15, that is a time when we need to hear that. I know I needed to hear that. I needed to know that I wasn't just my trauma. That's why I wrote it. During the preparation for this interview, I thought about Zainab Jabak, an inspiring 11th grade teacher and dedicated listener of our show, who recently won one of our giveaways. I remembered her sharing her admiration for Saba's work, so I reached out and asked if any of her students had questions for Saba. Of course they did. This is Elizabeth asking a question related to the two main characters in All My Rage. What advice would you give to any Noors or Salahuddin's in our high schools today? Oh, man. The first thing I would do is not advice. I'd just sort of send a verbal hug because it's not easy. And I would just try to remind them that they're not alone and that there are people in the world who care about them and who will care about them, that whatever their story is, it's not all they are. Um, Their story is still being written and it doesn't have to be bad. Even when you go through things that are difficult or even when you make decisions that maybe are not decisions that put you in the best circumstances, you're still writing your story. And there's hope in that. That's beautiful. And they all want to know what you're working on now or next. That's her entire class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm working on another fantasy novel. It is um, really fun. I don't know if I'll go back to contemporary anytime soon. Did you miss like having a whole world, a different world to escape into? I did. I did. I missed having the world building. I missed the monsters and the gin <laughs> and the feeling of fun that happens in a fantasy book where you have this combination of like adventure and romance and tension and mystery. It's always been my happy place in reading. And so I'm very excited to be able to do that again. And I think this fantasy feels a little bit lighter than Ember, not 
I think the themes are are just as big and the stakes are very high, but I'm sort of letting more of my humor into this book. And that was something that I didn't really know how to do before. And I really started doing it for the first time with, I mean, I always have like little teeny tiny jokes, you know, but nothing very like, you know, and this book is like, I think the characters, their voices are just one, one in particular. She just, she she struggles to take things (laughs) seriously. So that's been fun for me. I read somewhere that you said your dream job is a professional ice cream taster. So I guess in another universe, (laughs) that's what you are. Yes. Well, I should say my dream job is what I do. Yes. I am living my dream job. I'm very, very lucky. But a lot of times people are like, well, what would you do if you weren't a writer? And (laughs) I used to be like, well, you know, I wanted to be a rock star, but I have a voice like a dying alley cat. So that's not going to (laughs) work. So a professional ice cream taster, I feel like is most fitting with my personality. Another thing that I would want to do is like make a, a garish sock company because I do feel like I have really good ideas for socks. Okay, well, I need to get back to the ice cream too, but for example, what's going to be on some of your socks? So it's actually a combination of how the sock feels, which is to say that I feel like socks in general can, like the cool socks that have the patterns and stuff can be kind of thin and they can wear through really quickly. I have this pair of taco cat socks that I really love. It's a cat, but also (laughs) it's a taco and I adore them, but I've had to buy like three pairs because they wear through really fast. So um, part of it is just (laughs) creating a sock that does not wear through really fast. And then I would really like to, do you like a line of um, stepping on Lego socks? So like animals, You know, like the shark, like being like, ah, or like a bear, like screaming or shouting, you know, just like that. But but like, I want it to be animal themed. (laughs) So like we have a bear, we have a shark, maybe we have an otter. And every, every single one of them looks like they've just stepped on a Lego (laughs) because that was something that I experienced as a parent of two children. And it is a very unique look, face look. (laughs) So that's one of my ideas. I have others, but I think that's all we have time for. (laughs) Um, Well, maybe maybe this is the beginning of like a collab, like Saba Tahir uh, and Bombas can have, can have a, yeah, that can be your next extension. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. Growing up Muslim in rural America had a profound impact on Saba's perspective on the world as an adult but her experience is one of many. So for her reading challenge, she wants listeners to embrace the vast world of Muslim writers. I would love for readers to check out books by Muslim diaspora authors, and I hope that it will give an insight into the varied you know, cultures, traditions, and humor, right? Um, and mythology across the Muslim world. I loved the book Hollow Fires by Samira Ahmed. It is a murder mystery, but it's also very timely, very haunting. Definitely one of those books that'll kick you in the feels. Really, really powerful story told from multiple perspectives. I really love This Woven Kingdom by uh, Tahereh Mafi. It's a new fantasy by Tahra. She's known a lot for her early dystopian work, uh, Shatter Me, the Shatter Me series, which is a fantastic series. It's incredible that it's wildly popular even now, but she has written another series. The first book is called This Woven Kingdom, and it takes place in a magical world inspired by ancient Iran. And I loved it. I thought it was a, a beautiful, beautiful book, and that series is very hooky and fun and there's romance and adventure and beautiful writing. So those are a couple of books that I recommended that I hope people will enjoy. 
This week, we're giving the mic once more to Lessa Kanani Opuya Pilayo Losada, president of ALA, the American Libraries Association. She's spreading the word about the upcoming ALA annual conference, June 22nd to 27th in Chicago. You can check out the program and register to attend in person or virtually at 2023.alaannualconference.org. And in case you missed it, ALA recently announced that Judy Bloom is going to keynote the opening session of the conference, which is very exciting. And here's another speaker about whom Lessa is very excited. As a Broadway lover, I am very excited to welcome Tony Award winner Adina Menzel, of course, is Frozen's Elsa, and her sister, who's acclaimed writer and teacher, Cara Menzel, who will share the inspiration behind their new book, Proud Mouse, which is a lyrical picture book about a proud sister learning to find her own way. And finally, for those who cannot attend in person, Lessa also shared a bit about the digital experience. Our digital experience is in addition to the in-person experience in Chicago and offers access to more than 60 presentations from the conference wherever you are. The presentation selections are specially curated and include access to main stage sessions, as well as exclusive virtual speakers, education programs, news you can use sessions, and if you're an ALA governance wonk like me, you even have access to your ALA governance meetings. You'll be able to build out your own personal schedule, select your favorite sessions for easy access throughout the week, and you'll also have availability beyond the conference for on-demand sessions through August 31st. Okay, y'all. See you in Chicago. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to my conversation with Sabah Tahir. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Miracle's Boys by Jacqueline Woodson, and We Were Once a Family, a story of love, death, and child removal in America by Roxana Asgarian. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a few seconds to give us a five-star review. It's a small thing, but it really helps us out. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com and join us on social media at The Reading Culture Pod. And be sure to check out the Children's Book Podcast with teacher and librarian Matthew Winner. It's a book podcast made for kids ages 6 to 12 that explores big ideas and the way that stories can help us feel seen, understood, and valued. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for joining and keep reading. Mm -hmm.